Hello. Hello. I, was, I just called you, but then I hung up. Well, I, yeah, because I, I answered. I actually I thought about it. I looked at the green button and the red button. And I said, you want to click the green button. And I did. And then, uh, and then you hung up on me. I did. I hung up because it sounded like that I was going to be able to talk through my microphone and it was going to go to my headphones, which is what I, how I normally know that I'm ready to do a podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I, by ear, right? Like uh-huh. not, not to check. Don't, I don't check, check the settings. Right. Uh, that was uh, the flaw. Huh. Because when I started to ring ring you, as they say in in the UK, uh-huh. when, I, when I started to to give you a ring, um, it then it, it, the sound was elsewhere. It was like a huh. like my Skype was playing ventriloquist with me. And uh, anyway, so so then I was like, oh, eject! I'm out of this. <laughs> you know, you know what else they say in the UK? Uh, it's folly. Uh, no, uh, they say uh, like if you if you if 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 your friend uh, like if you want to like stop by your friend's uh, uh, room on the way to a conference or something, you say uh, knock me up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and by that they mean uh, knock on my door in the morning, right? Which is not it doesn't mean the same thing here. No, I think it's different. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that is yeah, that's that's different. That's true. Um, so anyway, I tried to I, I, I tried to knock you up back, uh-huh. but uh, and then I did. Then I finally I got I was like, no, I'm injecting. I'm gonna get my my settings right, and I got my settings right, and here we are. That's good. See, that's the difference between you and me. Um, I I show up on time and I check my settings, and you show up late. Early, and you don't early. check your settings. Well, you right. know, I was not not like super early, but I was before the appointed time. But it's okay, Ben, because this is uh, this is why we do the show. Because uh, I, you know, we're I, we're a, we're a perfect complement to we each are. other. I'm I'm the the John Roderick of this show. <laughs> I, think I think that's the way that I that I can see it. I was. I've been listening to two of John's podcasts today, so um, yes, I am in a, a John Roderick uh, frame of mind. Did John Roderick had a? I, I'm not sure if you're all caught up on Roderick on the line, but uh, this oh, week's yeah. episode was phenomenal. Yeah, uh, best best episode ever. I, I was, was, I was very so very impressed. I, that was the first uh, John Roderick uh, podcast I was listening to, and then and then he does another one with um, uh, Dan Benjamin. Yeah, uh, called Roadwork, and I was I'm, I'm a little more behind on that one, but uh, but yeah, the one that he just that he and Merlin just released is uh, just absolutely first rate. I lo- I loved it. Yeah, I've, I have not quite finished it, but I've been listening to it on my uh, on my daily commute the last couple of days. And mm. it's, it's good. Yeah, it's called um, it's called uh, Sonic Posture, and we will uh, we will link to it um, in uh, in the show notes. It is um, it's all about uh, the stuff going on at John's house and how he he needs to uh, move around his house, um, you know, f- to get the correct uh, Sonic Posture for the podcast. So and, it, it's, uh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yes. Um, I, I have a question. I've got an off, off topic question for you. Sure. Well, not, I mean, we really, it's, it's, it's global, right? We only have one big topic that we talk about on this show. Um, What's that? which is, iPhones? Well, yeah, right, right. That's not the off topic. <laughs> oh, co- okay. co- yeah. Are you, you, you strike me, Don. Mm. No, I don't, Ben. I, no, I'm not, not, I'm yeah. not a violent person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, Don, you've never stricken me, but, um, <laughs> But you sometimes when I when I think about you, I think that that guy, that guy Don Schaffner, I bet you he's a I bet you he's a chess player. Oh, I'm not I am, saying that figuratively, I am, no, literally. I am. I I I hate chess. I am not a chess player. Um, Are you really? I've yeah. read. I've misread you. Yep. Yeah. Chess is chess is too complicated. 
Um, I like uh, I like rules with complex strategy, but with simple rules. Games with complex strategy, but simple rules. I am I am more of a Go player than a chess player. Um, oh. So yeah, I chess is uh, I never. Yeah, it's just too complicated for me. Well, isn't that I, okay. I follow? I follow Gary Kasparov on Twitter, and I love what he has to say about everything. But uh, but I'm not a but I'm not a chess player. So I'm also like uh, I, my my dad. My dad is a chess player. He's he I, he's all about chess. And when I was um, eight or ten years old, he taught me how to play chess. And then I played him for a while. But he he also was um, or is uh, still like this. Not not someone who would. You know, uh, for instructional reasons, maybe let somebody win. And mm. so my my chess playing against him when I was eight years old was uh, I'd make three moves and then it was checkmate. And he's like, make better moves. Mm-hmm. So so, that was, so, that, so so anyway, um, I, I never really and I always liked the idea of playing chess, but I, I don't. I, and I've even downloaded chess multiple times, multiple apps for iPads, iPods, thinking, you know, when I'm on a plane, I I might want to play a game that that requires a little bit of mind you know, mindfulness, but I could also listen to a podcast while I'm playing. And uh, I've no no time in the past ten years that I've had an iPhone, or not quite ten years, eight years, let's say, uh, have I ever played that app that I have downloaded? And I will tell you, sir, there is a, a chess app on my phone right now that I'm that I'm not using. I've never used. Well, let me Just, let me let me suggest uh, a, a. So I also like the idea of playing chess <laughs> more than actually playing chess. Um, but let me suggest uh, an app for you um, <clears throat> that I have not played. But uh, that is uh, a very uh, well-respected app by the nerds. Um, it's by a developer named Zach Gage, and I recognize that name uh, because he is also the guy that uh, made that really cool uh, app whose name I don't remember uh, that we talked about recently on the podcast that's uh, like uh, word, uh, word searching things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Word – no, uh, Wordle. No, not Wordle. No. <sighs> don't, are you playing that one? I stopped playing. I stopped oh. playing it because I was I was addicted. Uh, and and you I, tweeted I, at them many times. Oh, oh no! And and they were very they were very helpful. They were very <laughs> nice. Uh, anyway, so the, but the game that I want to tell you about is called Really Bad Chess. <laughs> Excuse me, really, really bad chess. Okay. And it, the, the, it's the, at reallybadchess.com. We'll link to the website in the show notes. Um, and it says really bad chess, chess with totally random pieces. And so it is, uh, it, it, from what I can glean from hearing the nerds talk about it on the internet, it's, it's pretty, uh, hello? it's pretty cool. Oh, hello. Can you hear me? I lost, I lost you. No, oh. I lost you for a second. Oh, I got to really bad chess and then you went away. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, so really bad chess, like try, uh, eight knights, oh four, four bishops and three pawns. <laughs> Whoa. So yeah. this is awesome. Let's look at, um, like, yeah, six, six or, uh, eight night. Oh yeah. I'm, I just, I almost, uh, said what you said again. Uh, this is cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, so the reason why I'm asking you about this is, um, my my son uh, Jack, who has uh, started recently at a new school, I mentioned that in a couple of podcasts ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the school has a thing like their whole community is really into chess. Like that's what they're known for. Whoa. So I don't know. There's maybe 600 kids that go to the school. They have a Wednesday night after school chess club. 250 kids are on this in this chess club. Oh, that's very cool. 
It is very cool. And he was, so last night was his first night of chess club and they have t-shirts and they, it's in their cafeteria and they've got chess boards all over the place. There's like 15 teachers that help supervise this. And, um, so he's never played chess before. Um, and you know, I, I'd shown him these apps on my phone that I don't play and nice. said, Hey, do you want to learn how to play chess? And he's like, no, but he had some new friends that, that are in this chess club. So he decided he wanted to play. Um, and so I picked him up and said, how's chess club? He said, it was great. Um, did, you know, did you have a good time? Yeah, it was, it was fun. Did you learn how to play chess? No, the first four weeks, I just get to watch everyone play chess. So, so hey, you know, in, they, yeah. they've obviously figured out a system. <laughs> so, um, oh, and the, the name of the game that I was trying to think of is called Type Shift. Uh, and again, the billing, the, the top line billing of that is anagrams meets word search with a sprinkle of crosswords. Um, and it's a great, it's a great game. I just stopped playing it because that's kind of the way I am with games. I'll obsess over one for a while and I'll play it and then, uh, and then I'll just, I'll, I'll just, you know, drift away and, and stop. Um, yeah, mostly these days, uh, it's just looking at Twitter and catching up on podcasts. I'm really behind on my podcasts, so. I like to – so do you, do you always get the internet when you fly? You know, lately I, ha- I have um, because I just figure I, I deserve it. I'm special and I deserve, yeah. it. I deserve it. So, yes, I've been, I have been doing it more than often than not. And, you know, I, I, throw, it, I throw the receipt in uh, my tax return pile because it's a consulting expense. Because theoretically, Ben, I might have been doing some consulting on the internet during that time. You're preparing. 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 Yeah, preparing. I like to put some preparing in in hummus every once in a while. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you're you're just preparing for a consulting job. Yeah, sure. Well, so I don't. I mean, I sometimes do and sometimes don't. Um, I've been, I've been catching up. I haven't even really been flying much last, last week. I had a few, few, uh, one trip and I caught up on some old game of Thrones mm. and I say old cause I'm, it's new to me, but old to, to many people who have been watching game of Thrones, I'm on, um, season two. Um, but, but I like to listen to a podcast and play games, uh, sometimes as part of that, uh, decompression. And I, um, Sometimes I'll get the internet too. I've been playing like Free Cell, Free Cell oh. Solitaire. Yep, I w- and uh, yeah, th- it, there's it's a great, it's still a great game. Yeah, there, there's a uh, there's a. Uh, Various solitaire games that are available through the games uh, app on on various you know back of seat uh, uh, platforms on on uh, airplanes and and I I do I do like a, a solitaire game from time to time. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's fun and it's a little bit mindless and not not at, at the same time. So anyway, I'm I am I brought this chess thing up because I thought I am looking for. An, another way to to connect to my kid and and he i maybe i will start to play chess if he wants to play chess with me um and then it won't be just me thinking about playing chess uh maybe i'll actually i'll actually do it but i also will not uh, fall in the trap of um what what my father did with the uh three move checkmate uh over and, and over get better yeah and then get better yeah and get yeah. get better you should don't make those moves <laughs> Uh, yeah. um, oh, speaking of things that we've been watching on planes, I do I do want to uh, ask: uh, Have you ever heard of the television show called Rick and Morty? I have heard of the television show Rick and Morty. I've not viewed the television show Rick and Morty. 
Yeah, so I've heard it talked about on a number of podcasts, and my uh, my son, my older son, was like, "Oh, Dad, you really should check it out." So I have been. I'm uh, probably halfway through the first season of Rick and Morty, and it's uh, it's good. I'm not quite sure why everyone thinks it's so fantastic, but it's certainly a, a mild, uh, mildly entertaining diversion. So uh, that's a. Uh, uh, half a thumbs up uh, for Rick and Morty. It's, uh, it's uh, nine point three out of ten uh, on IMDb. So people do seem to like it. People like it. Yeah, I. Uh, you know, we've we've talked. I'm not a. I'm not an animated guy. Mm. I know. I, mean, I know. I'm I, animated. I, I, I wanted you. I, I tried yeah. to get you to watch Adventure Time, and I don't think I you ever did. No, no, I didn't. I never did. Never watched it. I uh, no. It's it's just not. I don't know. It's not my thing. And I've passed it on to one of my kids who hmm. also never wanted to watch cartoons and still uh he he is less accepting of others who watch cartoons um than i am like i, I would never judge you for watching a cartoon where, where that's he good would, yeah well, he would he would judge you um and i i'm, oh, I'm working. okay i'll play chess and beat him in three moves right three, and then he'll just cry um i so i watched a new i've got a new show for you okay uh, that I that I'm we are in love with, and it's only two seasons and six episodes. It is on Amazon Prime. Do you have you have that? Uh, yes, Amazon videos. Yep. Uh, One Mississippi is the name of the show, and it is with uh, a, a stand-up comedian, a Tig Notaro. Oh, I, I know, I know Tig Notaro. Yes, I. Uh, I don't. She, how do you know her? How do you know Tig I, Notaro? I, I know her because she is friends with uh, Jesse Thorne. And the Max Fun Con group, oh. and I don't think she was ever at Max Fun Con, but I've heard her uh, like talk. Uh, like I, I learned about her through those circles, and uh, yeah. So, yep, she's she's awesome. This yep. show, you got to check it out. Um, it is we. I saw her on um, Jimmy Fallon last week. Had no idea who she was. Uh, she did you know this is this is why people go on these shows, right? Do yeah. an interview. Promote their show. Danny and I said, watched watch that interview. Said we got to find this show. We found that it was on Amazon. We have Amazon. Um, and then Saturday night, we turned it on and watched uh, the entire first season, six episodes. Whoa! And then, like, well, good thing there's a second season because Sunday night and Monday night we watched the entire second season. Um, so it's it, it's great, Re- great dry sense of humor. Um, there are some great characters in the in the show. Her stepfather, Bill is maybe one of the greatest characters of all time on TV. Okay. He's really, it's really, really good. Uh, good. So so check, yeah, check it out. Yeah. And I've got a a follow up. So if you may, you may remember last time we talked, I think I was talking about hinterland or not hinterland, uh, but uh, Shetland, uh, which which was a a murder, uh, British murder thing set in the Shetland islands. Well, we ran through that and it's, it's, you know, it's, we're, we're done with that uh, because we watched it all, but we got recently started on something called hinterland, uh, which is the same basic idea, but instead of being set in, uh, the Shetlands with it's lovely Scottish. It's it, no, it's it's set in Wales um, oh. with lovely Welsh accent. So everyone sounds like David Lloyd, and it is uh, oh, well, oh and nice. it, it is quite well. It is quite quite dark, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a there's a it's a part of Wales apparently that I've never been to. That's very like white trash, and everybody's like it's this is it's very dark, but but. Very good as well. Um, so we, we we've been enjoying that, and it's got I think it's got three seasons, and so we're we're only about halfway through. So I love now. Tell me, is it 
exactly the same as Shetland, where it's a, it's a small town where there's a lot of murders. Um, it, well, it's it. Well, see, the thing is, that it, it's Shetland seems weird. Like it's it's really a pretty small place. It seems very odd that there's so many murders. This is a this does not seem odd that there's so many murders in this place. Um, yeah, says uh, I'm reading from IMDb. A noir crime drama set in Abers. And then there's a whole bunch of owls, uh, whales. Um, so anyway, but uh, no, it, these it's the, these people. It, there's a reason why these people are all killing each other is because they're just they're just it's just a sad, bleak existence. So it's 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 much more believable that there's this many murders in this in this very godforsaken part of Wales. <laughs> well, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> um, and and it sounds like maybe that's maybe that's where David Lloyd's from. He's he, you know he doesn't listen to this, but I did tell him that we talked about his turkey neck. Oh yes. Uh, after we recorded, um, you had me at murder. She wrote yes. uh, a couple episodes ago. I looked up um, the the uh, you know number of murders, and I can't find it now. But it is something like there were two hundred ninety seven murders in Cabot Cove. Yes, exactly. Like something yes, exactly. insane. Yep. Um, so, and, and, and Cabaco is like the town that I grew up in, uh, Port Hope, Ontario. And in the entire time that I lived, and it, it's, I mean, age and stage, right? Right. But the entire time I lived in that town, uh, you know, 10 years, we, we had exactly zero, zero murders. So if there were 297, <laughs> it would have been like, it would have been crazy. If yeah. there was like 10, it would have yeah. been crazy. Yeah. Uh, there were 264 episodes uh, in 12 seasons. So, and I believe, uh, as the as the saying goes, uh, uh, every every episode gets a murder. Well, uh, some, sometimes, sometimes on Shetland, um, you get like it's a twofer <laughs> or a threefer. Oh. So you know, you can get it starts off with one murder, and then soon there's another. Is it ever a? Um, is there ever a, like a three season, three three um, episode story arc? Oh yeah, yeah. So maybe one murder over three episodes. Well, that's that's a good. That's a, you make a very good point, Doctor Chapman. For for a for a qualitative guy who's not quantitative, you make a an excellent point, sir. I I try, I try. Um, so there were uh, yeah. So anyway, murder she wrote. Uh, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> we uh we will we will link <laughs> we there, will link to uh, the IMDb page for murder she wrote. So before we leave 1980s television, yep. um, there's a, and, and to circle back around to um, one Mississippi, there's a wonderful scene in one Mississippi where Tignotaro meets um, meets a woman who uh, is uh, who, who she who she ends up dating mm-hmm. uh, briefly, who um, has eight or ten art or um oil paintings of herself and B Arthur because she <laughs> and, <laughs> just because she loves B Arthur okay uh, from well, the golden girls there you go so and sure. who does i mean B, who, who does right. a little bit B Arthur exactly uh, so anyway uh don i am the other thing i wanted to talk to you about before we get into real food safety stuff mm. is i i am fully into uh hockey season now for my children and I want to describe to you my my night last night and tonight. Sure. Um, so I picked picked up uh, my son after chess club to drive to the arena. This is at four forty five. We arrived at the arena at five thirty. He had a off ice shooting practice from five thirty until 
six. Uh, he then had an on ice practice, which I coached from six forty until seven forty. And then um, I had myself a hockey game at uh, nine twenty last night. So I, and the night before I played a hockey game that started at ten fifty. Uh, and then tonight I coach again uh, from five thirty till six thirty. And uh, tomorrow night I don't have anything, but then I uh, will coach uh, four times uh, on Saturday and Sunday. I think I might have hit already my overload of hockey, and it's only two weeks into the season. I, I'm exhausted, and all I did was listen to that. <laughs> oh, it's it's uh, I, I, it's great. We have, we have a good time. I'm just uh, I, I'm tired, Don. I'm tired already. Yeah. You you we haven't even talked about your day. You started today in Brazil. Uh, well, no, well, no, sort of. no. I started today. Uh, I would say over the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, last night, uh, uh, last night, uh, I got on an airplane uh, in São Paulo, Brazil, um, around uh, nine o'clock uh, Brazil time, which was eight o'clock our time. And uh, yeah, I flew through the night, uh, nine something hour flight. Uh, landed at Newark Airport this morning uh, and uh, drove home. And uh, yeah, here I am, ready to do here a podcast, fresh as a daisy. <laughs> Exactly. You you sound better than normal. Should... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I was feeling I was feeling a little tired uh, before the podcast, and so I uh, made some. I had a, I had lunch, and then I felt more tired, and then I had some coffee, and that didn't help, and so I made some tea. Um, but the other thing that I changed, so so I you know again, little little inside baseball uh, for uh, listeners of the podcast that may or may not know this. Um, I often record from home, and at home I have. A, and again, if you're you know if you if you're a longtime listener, you know this, but I I have. A treadmill desk and um, and I have an adjustable desk that's the treadmill desk and I never I don't record the podcast while I'm walking on the treadmill because that would be distracting and it would be you know noisy so I don't do that um, uh, but what I do do is I often will stand at my tread on my treadmill um, with the desk in elevated position and I will often record that way just because I feel it, it makes me more animated uh, but today I'm tired Ben so um, can you guess uh, what the configuration is today I'm, I'm gonna say um, like 16 pillows on a platform in uh, in your living room uh, with uh, aromatherapy and uh like a, a a soft greenish light yes that's uh <laughs> that's exactly what it no um well, you're right about the green um so uh, uh, as we've as we've talked about uh, i do have a uh, a ball um uh, that i sit on uh, on the treadmill and so i am sitting on a green ball uh i don't know what you call it a, a yoga ball or whatever uh i'm sitting on a green ball on the treadmill very important point that the treadmill is not moving okay so the treadmill is turned off i'm sitting on the green ball um so you know strengthen my core um uh, and uh, and in in the seated position and uh yeah uh listening uh, listening to you and talking to you so well, that's here, good. here we are I, here we are here we are um <clears throat> Yeah, I'm I'm in my office. Uh, I, you your know, home, your home office or your no, work? my in my office office. My, for longtime listeners of the podcast, Don, I really think that they, without us even telling people where we are, that from the uh, acoustic signature, they would be able to uh, to say, oh yeah, I think I think Ben's I think Ben's looking outside of his office window um, on on campus, um, hmm. and yeah. And and I can tell I can tell your your audio is, is a little different from place to place. Yeah, well, I'm I'm uh, recording from uh, from home. I have the window open, um, and as I was sitting and waiting, I heard crickets. Um, let me just just oh. let's let's see if we can hear the crickets. 
Yeah, don't really hear crickets, but no. uh, but anyway, uh, I I thought I was quite sure I was hearing crickets as I was waiting for you to call. So, oh, cr- are you sure it wasn't just me? <laughs> crickets. Ah, uh, I see. I see what you did there. That was nicely done. Nicely done. I got it. I got it. Uh, well, here I am, and I was only four minutes late this time. Yeah, that's and good. Then it was not. Yeah, it's not too bad. No, you're pretty um, good. Yeah, and I was like, I was, I was around. I had, uh, I had some stuff that I was, uh, I was taking care of. Um, taking care of business, as, yeah, as they say. So, so what I was going to ask you about? <laughs> You're going to ask me uh, uh, about fake degrees. <laughs> I was going to ask you about fake degrees. Uh, I just sent you. Um, May this really, really it has to do with the headline? Yeah. The, oh, the, the story itself is 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 interesting but i want to read the headline uh, toronto man quote angry after learning that his $8100 masters degree that required no exams or academic work is fake <laughs> you know i just learned about this prior to your text do you know how really? i learned about it oh from my tw- from twitter no oh how'd you learn about it i learned about it from facebook and from uh who who do i know uh, that's not you. Um, who's from Canada? Uh, David Bacon. David Bacon Schaffner. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, Dave Dave Bacon Schaffner uh, was was posting about this on uh, on Facebook. So I, uh, it's funny that you should uh, that you should also send it to me. So I so really I I, I just love how this this is the shocked face of an individual um, who who thought. Well, my, you know, I haven't had to do any work for this month, this uh, master's degree. Uh, it seems <laughs> seems a little bit weird, but I paid my eighty one hundred dollars. Hang on a second, this thing's fake. What? Uh, well, yeah, it, so it's, it, here's what he said to CBC Toronto. I don't necessarily like to pay three uh, thirty thousand dollars to get a master's when I feel I already have the knowledge. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? I don't I don't necessarily like to pay $30,000 when I get my degrees. Yeah. Right? Like what the last 12 degrees that I got, they weren't even close to $30,000. Yeah. So $8100 seems like it's it's reasonable. Yeah. He he, he the degree is issued <sighs> by Kings Lake University, which he found by searching the internet. It's based on his previous life experience and professional accomplishments. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, oh. so this is it really is awesome. Uh uh, his name is um, uh, Erwin Schneidzins, yep. and Erwin Schneidzins uh, said he said he was on the hunt for a master's degree to quote validate his professional and life experience. He thought the university was real. He <laughs> felt like they were a little more legit than other ones. Their website's pretty good. He's he, he, Ben. He's the president and CEO of Mount Knowledge, an educational software company. Uh, in his LinkedIn profile, he's described as an artificial intelligence gamification patent inventor, keynote speaker, professor, author. Oh gosh, he's the best. Oh my gosh. So anyway, he. Uh... I, you know, I, 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 I feel bad anytime somebody gets taken advantage of, but I really don't feel too bad. This guy got schnookered for, uh, uh, $8,100, uh, Canadian because he looks like an idiot. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. He still (laughs) advertises the degree on his personal website and LinkedIn profile, but he's told CBC Toronto that he hasn't used the degree to get jobs or anything. Well, no, he's president and CEO. What does he need a job for? (laughs) 
Oh, this is uh, it's pretty pretty great. So funny, funny. Uh, so I came across this on on the Twitter on the Twitter. Oh, wait, sorry, sorry. Um, he never suspected that a degree based on life experience that required no <laughs> academic work, studying, or exams could be fake, as it was in line with his approach to education. That was exactly. his philosophy. That's yeah, his philosophy. <laughs> I, what oh. what I'm kind of surprised about is why didn't he? Just create his own master's degree. Uh, yeah, based on exactly. that, and then and I wouldn't have had to pay anything. Yeah. Uh, so so I I came across this uh, th- this link uh, from uh, someone who I follow on Twitter who I just discovered it was on Twitter and it's, his name's Ivor Tossel, oh. and he is a product manager for BuzzFeed and he oh. he lives in in New York City and Ivor Tossel used to write for. Uh, the Globe and Mail, which is uh, Canada's national um, newspaper, right right behind um, Canada's national coffee, Tim Hortons. And uh, little known fact, I went to went to university with Ivor Tossel. Mm. We lived on the same floor in uh, at the University of Guelph uh, uh, dormitory uh, or residence, as we call them in in Canada. We're a little more formal. Uh, uh, Lampton Hall, and Ivor, I uh, I, I just. Like he came up as someone retweeted him, and I was like, "Wait a second, I know that guy." And turns out he uh, he writes for BuzzFeed now, and uh, and so I started. He's he's the real deal. He's got a blue check mark. Yeah, he's got, he's uh, got eighteen thousand followers. Yeah, yeah, he's like he's I, he's a big deal. I I would I would have thought with a name like that, he's just uh, like made up. I mean, that's not even no. a real sound. It's not like Ben Chapman. That that sounds like a real person's name. Ivor Tossel. That just sounds like a bot. <laughs> It true, and then not only that, like it's not like he changed his name to Ivor Tossel once he started getting famous or to get famous. I know him as Ivor Tossel. Now, did you reach out to him on Twitter and say, "Hey, Ivor, it's me, Ben"? No, I didn't. Okay. I didn't do that. Um, also, uh, I, he's, me, he's uh, probably famous now. He probably wouldn't talk to you. Totally famous. <laughs> um, three, three, de- uh, two degrees of separation from famous people. Um, I don't know if you if you saw uh, on Twitter. Uh, earlier this week, uh, James Woods, the famous actor, you know, yes, you know him. I Did do. you see the, his controversy this week? No. Oh, just he. Um, he's. I. I would not say that he is a very nice person. Um, we. We don't have the same uh, uh, political leanings, but that yeah. is not not the case. Um, he uh, kind of went off after a bunch of people, and especially a movie. That has uh, two um, two gay characters, and one of them is twenty four years old, and the other one's seventeen. And it's a, you know it's a story about falling in love. And he he um, went after this movie, and I can't remember what the movie is called, um, but on Twitter went after it, and then uh, it was pointed out to him by an actress, Amber Tamblin, that and he went after it as like, oh, this is like this is disgusting, and it's like pedophilia. Um, he, he, when I, uh, was, it was pointed out to him that by an actress, Amber Tamblin, that when she was 16, he, uh, he was in his fifties and it invited her to, uh, to go on a date in Las Vegas for a weekend with him. Um, and anyway, the reason why I'm telling you all this Mm -hmm. is that, um, the, if uh, a, a woman that I went to high school with Hillary Rowland, um, is uh, dated James Woods uh, about 15 years ago. Whoa. 
and, and and I remember I saw this whole thing, and she she runs uh, I I don't know what she she does now, but she was she was famous uh, for running a, an online magazine, um, and uh, called uh, the the Urbanet magazine. Um, and it was uh, known as the North America's first online women's magazine. Um, anyway, so she she de- dated him and was maybe like forty years his uh, junior. Junior, yep. And I was like, oh, it's an interesting thing. So anyway, uh, uh, Hillary Rowland. Uh, so then I went in this deep dive on the internet about Hillary Rowland, and she had been um, n- people on uh, on Gawker didn't like her uh, very much. So. So anyway, those those are my my connections to to people that that are uh, somewhat famous, Ivor Tossel and Hillary Rowland. Wow. Well, I've uh, I've met Merlin Mann in real life, and I had a podcast uh, where John Roderick was a guest. Uh, <laughs> but I guess hey, you can claim the same two things. Hey, funny, me too, John. Me too, Don. Uh, oh well. Uh, hey, should we talk about some food safety stuff? We should. Oh, I got stuff. We got stuff. There's feedback. There's not feedback. There's um. There's stuff on things that are going on in the news. We I, let's let's start with some feedback. What do you think? Okay, sure. Where do you or where do you want to start? Well, I, I, I was start. I was going to start with uh, how minimum wage affects restaurant hygiene, Ooh. just because I have the link open and I want to make sure it's in the right place in the show notes. So okay, let's do that. Let's okay. talk about minimum wage. Okay, so uh, yesterday I got like four emails about a NPR coverage of a paper um, that was. Um, Written by, uh, let me see, I'll find the paper here. Um, uh, Suber, uh, Chakarabadi, uh, Srikant Devaraj, and Panjak uh, Patel. And um, these are three folks one from Purdue, one from um, Ball State, and one from Villanova. And the uh, paper those are, is those are pretty common names. It's going to be really hard to find that on the internet, Ben. Yeah, I'm going to send you the actual paper, Don. Okay. Oh, and you're going to love the link I just sent. I don't even know if this will work. Um, it's a it's a working paper entitled "Minimum Wage and Restaurant Hygiene Violation: Evidence from Food Establishments in Seattle." And I want to go back to uh, um, something that we discussed uh, probably over a year ago about economics uh, papers and peer review, and this this is oh, an yeah. economics yeah. paper, right? But um, we we talked about a, a paper about um, farmer's markets by Mark Bellmere, who who I uh, follow on Twitter, and I think he, he follows me now after we talked about his, his stuff. But, you know, we kind of, in our in our world of, of food safety, we publish papers and then we talk about them. And in the economics world, the idea is a little more, like I have an idea, I'm going to put it out there and let people take shots at it. That's and I, exactly right? the model, right? So, so it's a working paper. So, what, what we've linked to, what we will link to here, is a working paper uh, by by these three economists. Um, the The idea here is looking at um, it. Really, it does is there an effect by increasing minimum wage? On certain aspects of food, and um, the, the 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 hypothesis was that raising the minimum wage will affect food safety. Not not like in the negative or the positive, but there will be an effect. Um, I'm going to jump over now to NPR coverage of this from yesterday, um, and so there was a. Uh, 
a, a discussion on N- NPR, an interview with uh, one of the authors, and the essentially what it comes down to is is this, and I'll read a quote from uh, Srikant uh, Devaraj. We find that a dollar increase in minimum wage resulted in a 6.4% increase in overall health violations and a 15.3% increase in less severe violations as a result of these increases. Um, and it's, you know, pre- the uh, interviewer uh, says it's a pretty striking set of numbers there. So what's the link they found? And they, what the thought is, is that when restaurants face higher costs, they can do one of two things. They can find ways to pass the costs on to consumers, but really that doesn't happen. Obviously, diners don't like to see this. They might also scale back some services, cut back hours of workers, or add additional tasks to, jo- to staff jobs. As a result, some service issues might come up, might start to crop up. So, so the idea is, you know, if if you're at a restaurant and you're you're forced to to um, raise the minimum wage for policy reasons, that you can't uh, you know you can't have a twelve dollar or fifteen dollar Big Mac. So you have to find out how to also preserve your you have the same amount of revenue, but you have increased costs. And how, what do you do? Well, you cut your costs somewhere. Right. You cut, you cut corners and, and food safety can be one of those places where you cut corners. Yeah. Really, really interesting. So I don't know. I, I, I read the paper today. I don't get, I mean, I'm not in the world of economics. Um, Did you like all those equations in the middle? Did you read oh, all those carefully to check their Don, math? <laughs> Don, the equations, the alphas. <laughs> All the alphas, alphas, the betas, the letters I don't recognize. <laughs> yeah, I don't know even know what. There's a pie in here, and I know that there's a. Well, there's, of course, there's, there's a, pie. Restaurants always have pie. It's <laughs> a pie. There's a pie restaurant. <laughs> I think you're thinking there's of a, a. It's a. Yeah, I think you're thinking of a pie restaurant. There's lambda. Uh, yeah, there's all the lambdas. There's that. There's that. Uh, there's that thing that looks like a D. That's not really a D. It's like, but it's. I don't think it's delta. I don't know. It's. Uh, Anyway, there's a there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of math in here. Yeah, there's a lot of oh, math. And you know what else? I, re- I I don't know about the math, but I love uh, that that there's also QEDs. So oh, there's um, tons of QEDs. There's mins. There's maxes. And it, uh, honestly, when I look at the results table, though, it really just looks like regression, right? I mean, uh, right. So I don't understand why they need all that math, but um, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, I. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm skeptical. Let's just say, I'm skeptical too. And and here's here's the conversation that that you and I have often, uh, and and we're not we're not unique to this. But um, is, is there a correlation? Maybe. But is is minimum wage the causation? Right. Right. Like like could we could we just be seeing poorer restaurant inspection scores because? <clears throat> In Seattle specifically, there's other stuff that's going on, right? King County uh, um, went through a whole bunch of restaurant inspection exposés. Um, they started posting restaurant grades. There's just a lot of conversation around changing the restaurant inspection res- regime. And could it have? Could that have been a factor here? Because that's not really even um, talked about in, in this economics paper. Um, so, you know, there, there were changes and we'll find some, some coverage to this in, uh, the Seattle uh, times. Actually, I found it right now. Send you the link. Um, King County restaurants to post signs showing health inspection grades. And that was, uh, in November of last year. So not, not really the same 
data time frame, but this was a three or four year political um, uh, hot uh, a hot topic. If you were if you were following the uh, um, the Seattle Times uh, food inspection coverage as as closely as I was, Don, you would mm-hmm. know that this is not new, right? So so w- could that have been the fact? You know, you've got all this political uh, pressure on inspectors. Could inspection grades? go down or hygiene infractions go up because they're looking harder because of the political aspect. Hmm. Well, and yeah, and so let's, and so just again, reading from the abstract, I mean, it, it does, reading from the abstract <clears throat> without having really read the paper or, or all the math, um, it does seem like a pretty good design, right? So they looked at, uh, they compared Seattle, uh, where minimum wage increased annually between 2010 and 2013 as the treated group, and New York City, where the minimum wage was constant as a control group. And, and they, they suggest in their abstract that we find an increase. <clears throat> In real minimum wage by 10 cents, increased total hygiene violation scores by 11.45%. And then uh, consistent with our theoretical model, an increase in the minimum wage in Seattle had no influence on the more severe red violations and a significant increase in less severe blue violations. And so I guess what I would say – well, so first of all, um, you know, 11.45%. I think that's too many decimal places. Uh, but, but, um, uh, we find that an increase in real minimum wage, increased total hygiene violation. No, what you, <clears throat> I think what you meant to say was we find that the increase in real minimum wage is correlated with an, inc- with the total hygiene score. Right. So, so you don't know it's called ca- they're, they're saying it's causation, but we don't really don't know. But what I would suggest is what we really need to do is to take this model and then take the outputs from this model and plug it into uh, Petran at al and see whether anything that actually causes an increase to risk uh, comes out of that. Right. So, so, so tie, tie the factors that increased here to uh, the ones that the factors that we know are, or we believe are predictive of, of actual, uh, uh, health risk. Um, so, but, but of course that would be, you know, kind of complicated, but that's really what matters, right? I mean, I really don't care if, uh, uh violations go up because I know, I, I believe, uh, you know, from, from Petran et al, that a lot of violations are like, well, you know, they don't really mean anything. Right. Right. And they're, we, they're there for a reason that's not always public health related, mm-hmm. right? Like, yep. Their yuck factor related stuff. Yep. I, I did, you know, I, I could see as I, as I sort of reasoned through this this morning, um, I could see where um, the non critical violations, that, and I read that as non risk factor mm-hmm. violations, um, could go up where you see things like, all right, I need, maybe I'm cutting back on my pest control because that's a real cost that I have every mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. But now I have to put more money into my labor line item. So instead of once a month, the pest control company comes, maybe they come once every six weeks. And and I could see that. But is that a public health risk? I, you and I have talked about this. I'd argue that probably not. Although these folks would uh, say in their, in their paper, um, uh, where is it here? Something about um, – oh, yeah. While hygiene levels may not um, exacerbate to levels where health authorities close down the restaurant, an increase in less severe hygiene violations could affect public health. They don't reference that. 
Mm-hmm. I'd like to know what that what you know what what that means and and the uh, let's back that up with some some microbiology. Well, they're but, economists, Ben. That's true, and we're and we're not, Don. No, right? we're not, but we are we are food safety experts, and this this does seem to be talking about food safety. So yeah. So, so anyway, I'm, any day that NPR is talking about food safety is a good day in my books. Oh, hey, look! They, I'm just looking. They, they did cite uh, they did cite an article from Food Control, so that's one article from the food safety literature. You did. Um, that's oh, oh look of journal food protection. Okay. Yep. So okay, uh, well, that's two. There's a couple of people that I, I know. I know. I know uh, uh, Jane May soon. Okay. Uh, didn't didn't cite any of our papers. <laughs> no, that's okay. Whatever. Oh, G- ginger ginger gin. That's the. Uh, um, that's the paper that uh, another economics paper that focused on posting restaurant grades in yep. Los Angeles. Yep. Um, so reputational incentives for restaurant hygiene. Anyway, good. Uh, but yeah. So hey, um, speaking of uh, economists, I received a message uh, last night from uh, one of my former students um, who who didn't didn't say. Uh, I won't share her name, mm. uh, but she she said uh, two things. Number one, can you or someone you trust look at this recipe? A state fair entrant in her location wants to use it, um, and I'm struggling with approval. I thought you could help. <laughs> Number two, uh, her partner uh, was with Mark Bellamere at uh, University of Minnesota today giving a talk and mentioned our work uh, together. And he knows us amazingly. And Mark said that we reached out to him to be on the podcast and he never followed up. So she said, I think that means he's still interested if you are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then she said, sounds like dating. Yes. Uh, so anyway, we, we, sh- we, you and I are, who are not economists should have an economist on this show. Yes. And, and, and us, we should have a, a structured, uh, maybe not structured, a constructive conversation about uh, about this, where we see the shortcomings in these types of papers, and then he tells us about uh, how the microbiology doesn't matter, <laughs> or something like that. Sure, sure. That, that's how it'll go. You think? Uh, well, well, we don't even need to have him on now. We know how it's going to yes, go. That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> all right, so we got so we got minimum wage stuff. You know, we got we someone someone else who we know emailed us. Yes, Doctor. Uh, do, are we allowed to to share names? I, I believe so, right? Dr. Critter sent us something? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, we can certainly say Dr. Critter. Um, so, okay, here this this is the uh, message that, that comes to us. Okay, food code gurus. <laughs> In the 2009 code, section 3502.12, the code states... C, except for fish that is frozen before, during, and after packaging, a food establishment may not package fish using reduced oxygen packaging method. They go on to explain in Annex 3 that, quote, reduced oxygen packaging with fish, unfrozen raw fish, and other seafood are specifically excluded from ROP at retail because these products' natural association with non-proteolytic C. botulinum, primarily type E, which grows at 3 degrees Celsius, 37 to 38 Fahrenheit. ROP of fish and seafood that are frozen before and during after the ROP packaging process does not present this hazard. 
Her comment to us is, this seems like a very odd rationale for sous vide or cook chill operations for which the process defined in the code, such as storage temperature and shelf life after heating are designed around the knowledge the non-proteolytic C. botulinum spores will survive the, uh, the process and potentially germinate during refrigeration and storage. It also seems odd to exclude an entire commodity due to association when the same could be said for all other foods, such as mushrooms or root crops. Am I thinking this wrong? Um, and then on another note, she sent something nice. Uh, well, not that the other part was nice, but on another note, my MS student mentioned yesterday how much she enjoys listening to food safety talk. She then went on to say, whenever I read something, I always wonder, what would Don and, be thinking, Don and Ben be thinking of that? So thanks for being mentors to my graduate students. <laughs> Possibly there's hope for them after all. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that was, I mean, honestly, that's, I mean, that's so, no, not on, I was going to make, I was going to make a disparaging remark, but no, this is a great question. And also thank you so much for, for sharing that your graduate students listen to our podcast. That's why we do it. I mean, this is, this is, uh, you know, we're, we're molding, we're molding young minds. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, Dr. Critter is absolutely spot on uh, with this. Um, I think that, that folks, uh, regulatory folks, and again, apologies to any regulatory folks who listen, <clears throat> I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about other regulatory folks. I think these folks have um, a, I don't want to say pathological, but they have a disproportionate fear of fish. Uh, that uh, gets packed by ROP, um, and and I don't uh, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's justified. Yeah, and so um, one of our one of our friends, a friend of the podcast, um, Nora Nerd, Victoria Bryant, uh, per, has talked about this and actually um, submitted a um, a uh, issue at CFP last year about clarifying this packaging or this. Um, frozen before, during, and after packaging for for this exact reason. Um, I, I think that there's a there's a difference between I'm going to uh, I'm I'm going to require refrigeration to be below 41, but not below say 38 degrees. But often operationally, it is below 38 degrees in 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 cold storage, and I'm going to ROP fish and then store it for a long time versus I'm going to ROP fish and then cook it sous vide. Right. Or I'm going, you know what I mean? Like those two things are, are a little bit separate. So storing it, um, and then having, you know, maybe, maybe the, um, refrigerator piece or the walk-in, uh, allow for, um, you know, 40 degrees or right at, right at 41. Uh, I think it's a, a, a different situation. So, and they, again, the food code doesn't, it's not a very nuanced document in a lot of places, right? And right. in microbiology, there's a lot of nuances. Yep. And faith brings one up here, right? Like it's, it, we should treat the, we should treat the sous vide differently than, um, than the storage. Yep, and, and she very nicely uh, sends a, a paper uh, from AEM uh, by uh, Gary Barker, 
and others, including uh, Mike Peck. And uh, I just in a, in a little bit of an interesting coincidence, um, uh, Gary and Mike uh, and the other authors work for uh, a group called, used to be called the Institute for Food Research, IFR, uh, and they have just recently been na- renamed Quadrum. And actually, at the meeting that I was at in Brazil, um, I uh, met uh, again um, somebody from Quadrum, one of their colleagues. He doesn't, he's not a microbiologist. He actually studies uh, metabolomics, uh, metabolism of, uh, of uh, nutrients, um, and, uh, and those kind of things. But he was a real, uh, real, real good guy and really enjoyed uh, hanging out with him. And we mentioned, you know, talked about the people that we know in common. But anyway, this, this paper from AEM which I think I was the editor for, is entitled uh, Quantification of Non-Proteolytic uh, CBOT Spore Loads in Food Materials. And uh, to Dr. Critter's point, um, if you look at the uh, uh, basically the, the, the uh, concentrations of in, in these various food products, um, the, the, again, there's a lot of uh, really complicated math that I don't particularly understand uh, in this paper, but basically the bottom line is that um, fish are not necessarily uh, any riskier than, uh, than other, uh, other uh, products, right? So mushrooms and fungi end up being about uh, the same level of risk. Uh, herbs and spices, if I'm reading this correctly, about the, the, same, uh, the same level. Uh, plants, about the same level. Uh, as fish, um, well, or maybe I'm not reading this right. But anyway, the bottom bottom line is that there is uh, there may be foods that are riskier in terms of non-proteolytic seabot spores, but it's not just fish, right? And so this right. is where the food code takes a departure from being science based. I mean, certainly there is some science behind that, but there's also um, you know some emotion or or you know baggage there. I couldn't I couldn't find. Um, the public health consequence of this, like I, I did after after Dr. Critter emailed this to us, and I, I got like, hey, ha, are have we seen bot illnesses? We know that the toxin can be produced from a science standpoint, but have we actually seen bot illnesses from fish that were that were held at you know forty degrees Fahrenheit in in ROP? And I couldn't find any. One one outbreak that comes to mind because it happened in New Jersey was um, unaviscerated whole fish that were sold at an ethnic market um, and people contracted botulism. But again, I don't know. These were unaviscerated fish, so they had the intestines and, and there were spores, obviously, and I don't know how they were held. Um, and this is from probably in sometime in the 1990s. Um, so, but but again, from a restaurant that's doing ROP, I just I don't think we see the I don't think we see the cases. And again, you know, this the, I think the people have been scared of ROP and sous vide because uh, they're sort of people use them interchangeably, even though they're not exactly the same thing. Uh, but vacuum packaging certainly uh, is is potentially scary to people, um, but we just don't really seem to see uh, the outbreaks, whereas uh, nacho cheese, apparently, uh, we do. Yeah, right, right, right. We'll, we'll come back to that We'll in a come second. back to that. Yes, indeed. I just sent you the link for uh, show notes on outbreak of type E botulism associated with an uneviscerated salt-cured fish product in New Jersey, that 1992. Would... <laughs> see? Look, look at that. Is my good memory job. good or what? Yeah, I hadn't seen this before. Yeah. Um, and I was looking for the wrong thing. Okay. Like I, you know, I just, my as as soon as I started looking for botulism, MMWR, illness, fish, type E, then it came up. Um, 
But anyway, good, uh, good stuff. Well, why don't we, uh, oh, we, we've got some other, there's some other follow-up in here too. Yes. Um, there is, um, we, we received a message from someone who said, you can read my message, but not my name. Um, message. I'm looking for some help with the training exercise. This is going to sound random at first. Please bear with me. I have several managers coming to a 30-minute presentation that needs some revamping. Wait, wait, so let me let me let me let me oh. stop you right there, Ben. Um, if they were emailing us for um, like times on train schedules in England, that would be random. Someone emailing a food safety <laughs> podcast about food safety—that is not random. Okay, just well, just to clarify what the word random actually means. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but but here's the here, here this is where. Uh, our our listener gets to the random part. Okay. Um, to, you know, she's looking for a fun exercise. Random part, and it's hi- it's highlighted here. When I was in grade school, we were studying communicable diseases in sex ed. There was an exercise the teacher did where a, <laughs> where in a cup of water, you the first student spit. Then every student spit in the cup until it reached the end of the class to show why you <laughs> when you sleep with something, you basically slept with everyone they've ever slept with. By the end, the cup was disgusting, and to this day, I'm <laughs> celibate. JK, which is the best part that, of this whole that, email. That, that, is, that is a little bit random. Still not completely <sighs> random, but that is definitely a great exercise. Yeah. There was another test where we had test tubes where we had to mix them with six random people. At the end, the teacher added something to each of them to see who had contracted HIV, and we all had, which is a little bit scary because <laughs> that's not – I, I don't think that the teacher – This they were just modeling this. They didn't actually run an HIV test. This right. wasn't a whole classroom of HIV-positive right. kids. Uh, back to the task at hand, I'm looking for something with a big impact that's interactive for a quick class. I've had students bring photos of loved ones, shown real view, videos of foodborne illness, done whipped cream on hands demonstrations, clothes germs demonstrations. But I was wondering if you guys had done, heard of, or seen any of the really great training demonstrations. Um, so anyway, that was, uh, that was the message. Um, you're, you want you go ahead and, and share your response. Oh, okay. So, uh, thanks for your message and the disgusting story. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't have any good ideas. Um, uh, we've done some hand-washing exercises and cross-contamination exercises using glow germ. And it sounds like, uh, you know, th- this is, this is not something new to, to this listener. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I, I do agree that you that it is very good to do these kind of exercises and 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 certainly we'll link to the GlowGerm uh, website. I think the company is still in business. They basically sell a a, a bacterial uh, simulation <coughs> simulator uh, that's uh, that fluoresces under black light, and so you can. Get, put this on people's hands and then uh, show them under the black light and there's lots of uh, quote-unquote germs and they go wash their hands and then you can see whether we, the areas that they missed and, and things like that. So it's a, that's a very helpful and instructive exercise. So so I've got one um, that's also equally as gross that, that we have been uh, running as part of our uh, Certified Food Protection Manager program, uh, Safe Plates program. Um, this is a program I, I mentioned on a couple of uh, podcasts in the past, but we developed it over the last four years by taking outbreak stories. So instead of training about, um, you know, here here are the bugs and memorize what they do, we we deconstruct outbreaks uh, over uh, you know really about an hour for each outbreak and talk about what what happened. Anyway, one of the activities that we have is a vomit cleanup activity, mm. where we um, you know either throw down some linen sheets. 
or if it's in a in a, a building like some of our extension centers have where it's a big auditorium and it's a nice like cleanable um, floor surface we um, use some simulated vomit usually it's like something like a soup or uh, something with a vomit like consistency and we just throw it down on the ground like someone vomited and we um, sim- you also simulate the vomit sounds of heaving uh, that go along with this but but from a you know it definitely grabs people's attention but it's used as a as a way to demonstrate the potential for droplets to go outside of a visible area of a lot of you know vomit plus we talk about aerosolization based on some of the work that um leanne uh leanne jacobs's group has done uh as part of the noracore project and 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 really talk about okay let's look at this event and see in a nice open space where it goes but let's think about what it looks like in a less control you know more complicated place where if someone throws up on a on a on a table or on a chair or closer to food and and where do those droplets go um so so anyway we we found that you're looking for disgusting this is it's not a cup full of spit um and it probably won't cause celibacy but it is something that that we we've, we've got a lot of feedback on uh, as being really um, instructional, not just saying, yeah, you have to clean a, you know, a, a 25 foot or 30 foot, um, uh, diameter, uh, from, you know, from the center of this event, uh, you know, draw a circle that's, that's, uh, 25 feet in, in diameter, but, but actually, okay, let's walk around the room and see where can you see, um, these, you know, this, this vomit. Yeah, um, and- good stuff. Yeah, another another thing that we've done uh, on that, depending on the site, is to mix glow germ itself with that. Mm-hmm. So you get this visual of where do the splatters go, but then let's turn the lights off and see how far we can find that glow germ. Mm-hmm. Um, so so anyway, that's you know it's it's not it's not perfect and it's not uh, always anatomically correct. Like we may be uh, throwing things down at a, at a different philosophy than what they're coming up from your. Uh, you know, from your stomach, but uh, but it's something that we've used that I really like. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, it makes <clears throat> makes the point that you have to really, you know, you have to really think about these things as being able to to spread uh, pretty pretty widely. So, um, so another another bit of uh, listener feedback. Uh, uh, this person says, uh, "Share all details freely." Uh, we'll we'll just we'll, we won't use last names, but we'll say Sonia. So uh, Sonia says. Uh, Big fan. Uh, recent uh, episode, Downward Facing Chicken, was my favorite. Uh, the discussion of food safety at the food bank brought so many questions and thoughts to me. Um, she says she just started a, a master's in food safety at London Metropolitan University and working on sustainability certification um, uh, for a couple of uh, crops for a few years. Uh, she's interested in food safety in developing countries and how to get started. Or if you have any thoughts, uh, there's a huge opportunity for improvement. I, I agree. She, uh, she writes that she served in the Peace Corps in northern Ghana and had to be very aware of food safety practices. Um, like your discussion on food banks, it's an area where not many eyes tracking an outbreak. Uh, do you have any basics uh, Peace Corps volunteers can teach communities where sickness from food is a problem? I did a hand-washing campaign, which was interesting. Met lots of community members that don't understand the principles of bacteria or germ transfer. How can we communicate this uh, in practices of uh, market stalls in developing countries? Um, so what I wrote was um, <clears throat> there has been some work done uh, in developing countries looking at antibacterial versus plain soap. 
Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, those unfortunately for those that that want to preserve our ability to use antibacterial soap, um, I think those studies were inconclusive, which shows uh, kind of the complexities of doing research in a real world uh, laboratory. Um, uh, if you look at uh, JFP, you'll find that there's a, a whole lot of uh, published literature on the microbiological safety of street foods in various countries, um, and they can be uh, they can certainly be risky. Obviously, uh, fully cooked. Foods that are not recontaminated after cooking uh, is, is probably one of the, the you know, the, the, the best things you can do to protect yourself. But in terms of um, um, uh, teaching and communication, Ben, I, I didn't really have any specific ideas. Do you, do you have uh, any thoughts on that? No, I think uh, you mentioned street food. And, and like, you, like you said, I think that most of the, the research, the data that we have out there on um, – on foods in developing countries uh, uh, really is has focused on on street foods i think and i think there's some limitations to that because it, it doesn't get into consumer handling um in the home and and in street you know street foods are are convenience foods but but depending on the the country or even the the location within you know uh, developing countries um the amount of that individual's food dollar that goes to street foods compared to, you know, subsistence farming and, um, and preparing food in, in their own home. I think it's, it's, it's maybe overinflates what we think about safety issues in those developing countries. Um, there is, uh, I, I sent you, sent a link. We'll have a link in show notes. Um, uh, Sonia, uh, Illich from Ohio state university, uh, had a, um, uh, gave a talk at IAFP this year, on um, consumer food handling in developing countries, and it's uh, you, you can purchase the um, if you're not an IAFP member, you can um, purchase the um, ability to watch the recorded presentations from the IAFP conference uh, and and check that out. And I, I viewed that uh, her uh, talk a, a few weeks ago because it's something that I'm kind of interested in uh, as I go further into my career on you know taking our food safety knowledge to, to other parts of the world that might not have the same kind of resources we do. And uh, I think Sonia did a, a fantastic job just uh, providing the overview and just differences in consumer preparation techniques and, and, and how that in storage and how that impacts um, things. So, so check that out. There's also um, a document um, that, that I'll send a link to, uh, from um, International Livestock Research Institute, ILRI, I-L-R-I uh, on um, called Food Safety in Developing Countries, an overview. And it, it gives a, a decent um, background uh, on uh, teaching uh, potential, like sort of the basics of what, what to talk about. And um, and, and really comes from uh, a few WHO uh, publications, but like things, you know, we, we you, clean water is such a big issue in developing countries that we don't encounter here, um, and in lots of developed countries, it's it's not an issue. So this document actually goes into a lot about water parasites and how that impacts the uh, that local food supply and and other other differing challenges. So so I would check that out as well. Cool. Yeah. Um, 
So we got that. Um, got Dr. Critter's stuff. Oh, hey, um, we we have another uh, another piece of follow up. Okay, from our friend and, and re, uh, frequent follow up provider, uh, Rachel Hartman. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And so she she writes, I'm in the middle of listening to, quote, you had me at, uh, and murder she wrote, and uh, had to write in to cheer you both on uh, for excellent journalism, scholarship, comedic savoir-faire, and so on. Yes, you definitely must ask Senator Franklin on. I just listened to his book, Al Franklin, Al Franklin, Franken, Franklin. Uh, Al Franklin? Is that? No, Franken. Uh, Franken. Franken. Giant of the Senate on Overdrive. Way cool. I cooked for him a few times as a chef at the Signet Society at Harvard. But anyway, the last many episodes that I've not written to exclaim fondly about, please hereby receive that exclamation. I laughed often and learned so much. Thanks again. I recently went back to work, and on uh, the first day I had to cook off 20 or so pounds of penne. This is because Lowell House is now under renovation activity that will last two years, and maybe we all moved, or maybe, and so we all moved to a brand new building uh, at the corner uh, of Mass Ave and Harvard Streets and Harvard Square. The people who designed and outfitted this kitchen ought to be keel hauled. <laughs> but anyway, pasta was previously. Uh, uh, came from the main commissary, which had a cook chill process, but now we're in a new place and have a steam jacketed kettle, have to do our own. Well, I used to routinely cook 20 or 40 or so gallon batches of soups and sauce, uh, sauces and so, and so on on a tufts and knew my way around the kettle, which means the first thing I did was dismantle the mm. spigot and examine the channel mm. of parts. Uh, it was, let's say, uh, it was not fair Harvard. I was really astonished, uh, even given how screwed up I thought this outfit was. Uh, so, anyway, uh, uh, Rachel, to, to skip through here, she she asked us if she if we know of any papers on this topic, the crud in the bottom of steam kettles, uh, and is there you know is there anything uh, there? And and, and so uh, I don't know, Don. Did you were you able to to find anything? Uh, I. I honestly didn't look, but I, my the short answer is I think no. Um, but I, I do want to say that we uh, we are currently working on a project uh, with the folks uh, from uh, Clear Labs. Do you know who Clear Labs is, Ben? I think we we have we talked about they they do yes yeah. So they were in remind, the news. Remind. Yeah. So the, yeah, they were in the news a while ago because they they te- they, they so they have a. Uh, tests for pathogens, but also tests for allergens and and foods that aren't supposed to be in in other foods. And they did um, some testing of hot dogs, and they found uh, rat uh, rat hair or rat rat DNA, which is evidence of rat hair. So, but we uh, so I'm uh, Gary Acuff and I sit on their scientific advisory board, and we've got a little project with them where we're going out and. We collect food from the dining halls. We're also uh, taking a sample of that food and saving it uh, to send off to uh, to Clear Labs. And I suppose we didn't, we haven't specifically targeted uh, any uh, vegan foods uh, that that I know of. But I mean, I suppose theoretically, we could. Rutgers does uh, prepare and uh, and and have for its students vegan foods. I suppose we could look at those vegan foods to see whether they contain uh, non-vegan ingredients. But short of short of that kind of a study, um, which I 
you know, again, the, the Clear Labs technology is pretty sophisticated and special. I don't think uh, that there are uh, there are uh, uh, any studies out there. I do know that we have had uh, outbreaks um, linked to. Uh, well, I, I do know that there have been uh, scandals periodically at grocery stores where uh, you were supposedly selling people beef, but it was contaminated with uh, with pork, um, and so people were buying that, expecting uh, that it be you know you know to try to uh, keep halal or kosher, and 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 not uh, and not not getting that. So I do know that it has certainly happened, but I don't know of any studies specifically. Yeah, no, no, me either. Um, uh, Rachel brought up a, a couple other um, uh, ideas here, just on you know allergens and and stuff, uh, and and sort of cross contact. But I'm not I'm not aware of anything either. And I did sort of have a cursory look, but um, I'm not sure um, I'm not sure there's a, there's anything out there. Yep. So uh, so sorry about that, Rachel. Thanks for thanks for writing in. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. Oh, so here I'm, I'm finding one. Um, so here's here's just just searching the internet here real quickly. Twenty um, percent of sausages tested in Canada are mislabeled. Study finds, and so this is from 24 August 2017. So relatively new uh, products advertised as single meat found to contain additional species. Um, oh, this is uh, this is from an article of Food Control uh, published in July. Yeah. So all right. So and you you probably aware of this because you follow the news more closely than I am. I do. I do remember. I do remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, uh, this is not looking specifically at, at the application, Rachel, that you're interested in. You're interested in, which is uh, 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 university dining halls. But obviously, um, this uh, undeclared species is for sure a problem. Right. The, the, that kind of stuff get, makes me a little a little nervous, right? Because having, fi- you know, I, I don't know always the particulars of. Um, of the testing limitations, but I assume that they're th- that they run a sample against just a bevy of primers uh, that are specific to, to species, and they say, "Is there any DNA from X in here?" And I I, I think we can I, I think we can get into trouble when we make the jump that says if I found DNA that matches this primer, that that means there is some percentage or some actual amount of meat in here like that that came from that that species. And that that's the part that makes me nervous because I think, you know, people get too really upset about it, but we don't know it's it's a, a limitation of the, of the assay question and what's the denominator kind of uh, question from us and also not knowing wh- like how much of it just you know if we're talking one strand that comes up with a really you know um, tight sort of PCR cycler that that makes that that it just amplifies such a trace amount does that does that have any functional issue like or does it matter well well and, and you know we can again reading from uh, the highlights to this food control article they say five turkey sausage samples contain chicken as the predominant species so i'm assuming from that statement there must be some quantification um, and then they did find undeclared species in beef, chicken, and pork, uh, 6, 25, and 5% respectively. 
effectively, and then uh, one pork sample contained horse meat. So uh, again, if you trust peer review and you trust these uh, Canadian uh, researchers from uh, you know and, and the publication Peer Review Process of Food Control, uh, that's certainly something to be to be concerned about. If you're buying uh, pork, uh, you probably don't want a horse in it. And uh, yeah, again, if you're uh, you know trying to be kosher, keep kosher or, or halal, uh, you don't want that. And mm. yeah, I mean uh, you know I I mean it's there's probably not a food safety consequence of my turkey sausage being mostly chicken, but um, you know I I because they're you know similar risks, but. You know, it's it's a it's a it's kind of like the organic uh, issue, right? Uh, or GMO issue. It's like if you're paying for something, you should get what you pay for. Yeah, true, true, true. I got, I gotcha. Um, but maybe the maybe the DNA isn't telling you enough information about what you're getting. But with the yeah, that. But all right. Um, <laughs> so. What else? What else we got here? We got, there's so much feedback, Don. I know we we we, we almost need uh, like a separate. Uh, and I I was pretty good about color coding a couple of them, but I, I didn't yeah. I didn't color code the others. But let's let's do so. Let's do one one more. Well, so we're we got. I don't know. Are you are you good on time? I am. I'm I'm good until uh, about three fifteen. We can. Okay. We got. Yeah, we're good. All right. So I need to be off at three for another call. So, uh, but we got we got we, we can make this a little bit of a long one. So, um, I do uh, I do want to do one more piece of listener feedback, and then I want to talk a little bit about eggs uh, because I did some digging uh, for a Men's Health article, and I just, I'm I'm boggled by the complexity of eggs. So, um, yeah. So so this is from uh, this was this came in uh, not through the regular feedback, but just through an email from uh, listener Keith who has. You know, a regular listener, and he says, uh, "I'm curious on your take on antibacterial dishwashing detergents in the kitchen. I've always used them, not so much for the claimed health benefits, uh, but because I hate to have my always damp dishcloth and sponge smell of mildew." Um, he says, uh, I previously used Dawn antibacterial uh, with triclosan, uh, but switched to Palmolive antibacterial lactic acid version about reading about uh, triclosan as an endocrine disruptor, and he links to an article there. Um, He says, I know it's often recommended to microwave the damp sponge to keep it from growing too many microbes. See see the the famous uh, 14 sponge study (laughs) from Germany. Um, uh, Do you see any harm in a bit of lactic acid in the kitchen, and do you use any antibacterial detergents? So, um, uh, I would say uh, so. I wasn't familiar with the Palmolive product, but I did go uh, and take a look at it, and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, my philosophy with kitchen sponges: if, the, if they start to smell, uh, throw them away. Uh, I've shared before on the podcast, and I will repeat again: uh, we we have an automatic dishwasher in our house, and I will use um, uh, 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 that to clean sponges. Um, again, uh, recently, or a year ago, FDA uh, Cedar Center for Drug Evaluation and Research effectively banned uh, triclosan uh, for over-the-counter uh, sales to consumers for, for at least for soaps. Um, uh, and again, uh, we've done research that shows that these things, I, I believe antibacterial uh, soaps do work. There's a benefit, um, but obviously I'm not an expert in endocrine disruptors. Um, uh, lactic acid, uh, generally benign, um, but I did read um, uh, something. Uh, this was an article from... The internet, oh, from Good Good Housekeeping, uh, talking about um, uh, these uh, the Palmolive uh, um, 
let's see the the uh and again uh, we we don't we don't chill for palm olive but uh i do uh, i have taken consulting money from colgate so uh you know consider consider me uh tainted um <laughs> palm olives ultra palm olive antibacterial dish liquid um registered with the epa to kill 99.9 percent of staph salmonella and e coli oh please could we stop spelling e coli e dash coli um could we could we use a capital e and then a period and then a space and then coli so thanks good housekeeping um for that um <laughs> Uh, let's see, uh, mix a solution of one part per mole of 20 parts water, blah, blah, blah. The active ingredient is a form of lactic acid rather than the usual triclosan. So unlike plain dish liquids, it is labeled as an eye irritant and should be like all cleaning products kept out of the reach of children. Yeah. Don't put soap in your eyes and uh, don't put soap with lactic acid in your eyes because uh, it's not good. So, uh, yeah, I have not, I have not tried this. Uh, I think the industry is going to be looking for ways to innovate, uh, because, uh, because triclosan, uh, can't be, uh, can't be sold and for these applications anymore. So, um, yeah, I, uh, that's, that's, that's all I have. I have, no, I have nothing to add. <laughs> this is your uh, your bailiwick um, of, uh, of of soaps. I had not seen this um, this type of product before, and so yeah, it was new, kind of news to me that it even existed. Do you uh, do you use antibacterial soaps in your kitchen, or did you prior to no. uh, the ban? No, no, it, um, no, but. It, Mainly because my my risk management strategy is that I use uh, uh, chlorine spray. Ah, okay. Uh, so so I've like I've never really looked at my um, at my soap or, or detergent as um, as it. anything that's doing sanitizing because we're gonna I'm gonna spray it down afterwards. Got it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, no. So um, I had something that I wanted to talk to you about. You want to talk okay. about eggs? But there was something. Yeah. Quite... So let's. So oh my... no! Wait! 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 Wait, yeah, we. I, so this is a this is a shout out to the internet because we have people that listen to this that might have skills and know how to find things. You mentioned the e dash coli. Yes. Before we leave this, yeah. where did that come from? How did it start? Could someone tell us the etymology of of that? There's got to be some like word origin where it was misspelled incorrectly in the in the New York Times in 1956 or something, and that was the first time I was seen. But if someone could find that, I'm really interested in that. Yes, and then and then and then also uh, how to make it stop. Right. Part B. Part yeah. Part two of that discussion is please please fix it. Yeah. But it's like I, I've never seen it with anything else. It's not like you see it with salmonella. You know, you know why why with E. coli? Yeah. Well, well, salmonella often not with a capital S. Staphylococcus aureus often just staph, not not capitalized. Yeah. But but which you know which also was in that good keeps, good housekeeping article. So shame on you, good housekeeping. You know better than that. But yeah, E dash coli. Mm. What what style guide are they using to check that with? Right. Like where is it? Someone tell, help us. Help us with this problem. Yeah. I mean, and I'll, I'll give it to you. Like you don't have to, in this, in, in the science, as we say, Ben, you have to italicize, um, uh, organism names. I'll give it, I'll give you that in a newspaper, you're not going to italicize, but at least get the capitalization and the punctuation correct. Yeah. I'll, I'll even give you, if you just want to say E period coli, capital E period space coli, um, and not the first time you write it, have to write Escherichia, I'll even allow that, okay? Because I understand it's the, the popular press and you don't have to follow scientific rules. But uh, yeah, I, anyway. 
Well, and and looking it up, there is something called the online etymology dictionary, and I put in e dash coli, and it came back with e dot coli, oh. uh, and says bacteria inhibiting the gut of man and animals. By 1921, short for Escherichia coli, 1911, uh, named for German physician Theodore Escherich, Escherich, and uh, Latin genitive of colon, which is colon. There you go. But where's the dash? Not, Not in anything I write. No, exactly. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I just, I got, that's good. I got, yeah. That was appropriate. We needed to, it wouldn't have made sense to come back and talk about E. coli later. No. Exactly. Um, Thanks. Yeah, so uh, a reporter from uh, Rodale Press, uh, men's health publisher, writes, three three quick questions. Uh, They weren't quick. Do small farms in the U.S. still have to abide by the rule to wash eggs in hot water and soap before selling? My editor has seen eggs out at farmer's markets. Is this legal? How long is it safe to leave your eggs out for? Oh, my God. Egg regulations are really confusing, Ben. Right. Um, and uh, so, so confusing. Um, so I, I blame FDA and USDA. So FDA issued a recent rule in July of 2009, okay, which says prevention of salmonella enteritidis in shell eggs during production, storage, and transport. Okay, so FDA regulates shell egg production. Now, in this rule from 2009, FDA specifically exempts producers with fewer than 3,000 laying hens. Why do they exempt them? Well, they exempt them because it's a small part of the food supply, less than 1%. Also, the refrigeration requirement, which is what we're talking about, does not apply to producers who sell all of their eggs directly to consumers. Okay, And so what this regulation requires is preventive measures during the production of eggs in poultry houses that requires subsequent refrigeration during storage and transport. Okay, So... Basically, if you are a big egg producer and you are selling to the marketplace, not directly to the consumer, so you're selling to somebody who's going to put those eggs in a carton, you have to refrigerate. Um, Now, what that says is that you have to hold and transport eggs at or below 45 beginning 36 hours after the time of lay. Now, FDA considers the 36-hour clock to begin at the end of the egg collection shift. So, for example, if you collect eggs, Ben, from your, from your chickens. Between, from my chickens. From your chickens. Between 6 a.m. and 5 p.m., the 36-hour clock will begin at 5 p.m. on Tuesday from, from all eggs laid between 5 p.m. on Monday and 5 p.m. on Tuesday. Thus, those eggs will have to be refrigerated no later than 5 a.m. on Thursday. So that's a lot of time out of temperature control, okay? But let's come back to washing because the, the, the person from Men's Health who asked this question right. also wraps up this washing, okay? Now, okay, so the regulations that FDA issued in 2009 – do cover production facilities where chickens lay eggs. However, they do not cover 
shell egg processing facilities. Now, a shell egg processing facility, Ben, is a facility that processes eggs. And what do I mean by process process shell eggs? Well, I don't mean cracking and making into um, egg whites or, or, you know, egg beaters or, or whatever, right? What I mean is facilities that wash, grade, and pack shell eggs for the table egg market. Now, for some reason, Ben, that I'm sure is a very good reason, and I'm sure somebody could tell us, those facilities are regulated by USDA, not FDA. And they are regulated for some reason under 7 CFR 56. Now, I don't know if you know your CFR, Ben, but FDA has 21 CFR. USDA has 9 CFR. Uh, but apparently the shell egg part is 7 CFR. Okay? so It's a different one. It's, it's, a, a, different, yeah. it's a different one. It only goes to 7. Uh, 7 CFR 56 is the regulation that requires washing eggs in hot, where hot means greater than or equal to 90 degrees Fahrenheit water. Okay? So, what does this mean? What does this mean is is if you have fewer than 3,000 laying hens and you sell – or you sell all of your eggs directly to the consumers, you don't have to wash them. You don't have to refrigerate them. Okay? If you – so this person who saw eggs at the farmer's market, not refrigerated, and apparently not washed, is that legal? Yes. It is, it is apparently legal because, because, again, you're probably selling directly to the consumer and you might be exempt because of you're less than 3,000 eggs. So, so there you go. Uh, how long should you leave your eggs out? Well, the advice that I give people is two hours. <laughs> but that's, of course, you know, in uh, talking about this 36-hour clock, right? And so, so, yeah, I can say two hours to a consumer because we give consumers really, really conservative advice. But I also know uh, there's this 36-hour clock, which doesn't really mean 36 hours, right? It depends on your egg-laying window, <laughs> Ben. It depends on your egg-laying window. Um, uh, and, of course, if you take – Ben <laughs> – thank you. <laughs> but, Ben, if you, cook, if you cook your eggs, none of this really matters. None of it matters, right? It like, matter. that's the, like, yeah. make, make your hard-boiled eggs – oh, and the other thing, too, and so, I, I can, I, of course, I have to add, a lot of this refrigeration stuff uh, is traced back to uh, the very first risk assessment that was done in the United States and then was revised. The very first risk assessment, I believe, published in 1999 – uh, on ref- uh, on basically salmonella in eggs, and it evaluated refrigeration. And one of the things that we know about an egg is that s- because sometimes chickens can be colonized with salmonella, they can lay eggs that have salmonella on the inside. When the salmonella is on the inside of the egg, it is in the white of the egg and not the yolk. Now, the egg, the salmonella can't grow in the white of the egg because the white of the egg contains natural antimicrobials like lysozyme, things that stop those bacteria from growing. However, there's a membrane that separates the white of the egg from the yolk of the egg, and that membrane is temperature sensitive. And so over time, that that membrane breaks down, and it breaks down faster at higher temperatures. Now, eventually, if that membrane breaks down and there are salmonella in the white of the egg, the salmonella can get from the white of the egg to the yolk through the membrane, which now is broken down, and once those salmonella get into the yolk of the egg, they can start to grow, and then that can lead to a, an egg that is highly contaminated because that yolk is full of like lots of nutrients and is an excellent growth environment for growing salmonella. So in the risk assessment, 
they have this yolk membrane breakdown equation. That equation is based on data from Tom Humphrey's lab in the UK that Tom thought was not good enough to publish because it was pretty poor quality data. So we have a regulation based on a risk assessment, based on data that a scientist, a well-respected scientist, thought was not good enough to publish. But that's what we have to do, Ben, when we do risk assessment. Exactly. I'm done. And we got to – right. And I'm, I'm going to take this to, to <laughs> egg level 12. All right. Because well, I – how many eggs are in a dozen, Ben. Right, right. See, Exactly. I'm going to take this up, and then we might even make it to the baker's dozen here. Um, I, I, I got an email from uh, a journalist uh, this week um, who is researching a story on uh, camping and backpacking and foods that you can take that are safe on a, on a long trek. And this, you know, my, my idea of camping is, is, is probably very different from yours, Don. I was not a uh, scout, uh, an Eagle Scout or a Cub Scout or – uh, in, in, in any scout of any type, I blame, your, um, I blame your dad who beat you at chess. Yeah, yeah, he was also was not a camper, just a chess player. Um, and and so, but but uh, you know, over the last little while, I've received questions about safety of taking things when you're camping, and like you know, so questions I got this week were, can I thaw a steak that's frozen in my backpack as I pack? And I was like, well, you can, you can, you, you can. can do anything you want. You can. And and then I even thought like, it's probably like, I would worry more about, you know, the, the question was, is it safe to do, are things going to grow? I'm like, well, things might grow. It depends on the temperature. It's complicated. I use that term multiple times in this interview. Well, I mean, here's the but, thing. You, you start with a frozen steak. The first question I have is how are you going to insulate it? Right? Exactly. Well, if, if you insulate it and honestly, if you insulate it and you bring along a thermometer and it's yeah. a steak and you fully cook it, it's probably okay. Yep. Right. A- but I would, I would collect some data first. Right. But that was, that was the, the conversation that I had. That's what I, you know, what I said. Um, the other thing that, that I brought up with that is, you know, the, the journalist was concerned about the safety of the steak. Now I was more concerned about the safety of everything else around the steak because the liquid's going to go somewhere. So now we've got this like backpack full of, you know, pathogen water. Um, well, that's a, yeah. Also, not good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so anyway, we we we. One of the things that we talked about was eggs, and uh, eggs are popular for campers. Don, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they want to take raw eggs and they want to take cooked eggs with them. And so the the question that I, that was posed to me was, while a, a cooked hard boiled egg. Is that a, a, a food that needs temperature control? Can I just put that in my backpack? And so I, I go to um, the trusty uh, food code, which uh, which you, you're you're familiar with that uh, that document. I believe I am. Um, and in in there, uh, there's a, a section on um, TCS foods. Um, and, uh, this is, uh, in, uh, let me scroll up. This is right in the, uh, early on in the food code in the, in the definitions. Uh, and it says, um, a a time temperature control for safety food does not include an air cooled hard boiled egg when with shell intact or an egg with shell intact that is not hard boiled, but has been pasteurized to destroy all viable salmonella. So. 
the the journalist said, so it's not a time temperature control for safety food. I can just leave it in my backpack. And I had multiple clarifications on this of as long as the shell's intact, you can. And uh, and my conversation went to when you're backpacking and you've got an, an egg in your backpack, it might become non-intact pretty quickly. Like you might get a crack. You may, you know, the, the, once that egg has had some introduction of a pathogen, especially if you're thawing your, your steak right beside it, you've got your pathogen water going through your cracked hard boiled egg shell. Now I've got a problem. (laughs) So, but yeah, on, on, on the, um, on the surface of this, uh, idea, could you hold a hard boiled egg in your, in your backpack? Sure. Why not? Well, and I would say if you've got some sort of a, a way to transport the eggs from a f- safety perspective, you might be better off taking uncooked eggs yes. and then and then uh, just cook them, right? Hard just boil them on the ca- at the campsite or make or make uh, scrambled eggs at scrambled the campsite, eggs. right? That might be better. But honestly, I think the risk the risk from a hard boiled egg even if it gets cracked is pretty minimal. Like I would, I would hard boil the eggs and then I would maybe transfer them, um, you know, using some tongs from, you know, the, the water maybe to a plastic bag, which is probably relatively sterile on the inside and then throw them in the fridge until you're ready to go camping, you know, like the next day or whatever. I mean, there's some things you can do to, I mean, it's in the grand scheme of things, it's probably, I mean, we can, as, as clever people and as scientists, we can imagine all these bizarre scenarios, but, um, you know, I think it's probably pretty, pretty, pretty pretty low risk, but yeah. Yep. Agreed. Uh, I, I just liked the, uh, conversation about, about more eggs. Now this, um, then morphed into uh, a, a question that, that arrived today that I haven't answered yet, which is, hey, just a f- quick few follow-ups. <laughs> just a quick few yeah. follow-ups. You're, uh, I'm only going to read the first one because it's the best one. Uh, in parentheses, you knew this question was coming. Does the 10-second rule work at all? Like, is there any science behind it? <laughs> <laughs> to which I have started to construct an email that says, my good friend and podcast <laughs> co-host Don Shafter and is one of his graduate students, Robin Miranda, did a lot of work in this. And I'm going to send her the paper. Nice. So, nice. So, yeah, there you, there you go. Um, but, yeah, eggs, they're, they're, uh, they're complicated, uh, cra- a compl- complicated issue to crack. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. That's, I thought that was funny. Yes, very um, good. I got I got stuff here, Don. Chicken sashimi. Come on. Oh my god, that's just gross. It's totally gross. Is it safe to eat chicken sashimi? I wouldn't eat it. Jesus Christ, it just looks disgusting. It, yeah, I uh, I did. So let me let me pull something up here. I did a, a barf blog post on uh, chicken sashimi uh, last week, and. Um, it's it's gross and it but it popped up you know this isn't the first time this has come up it was on the internet and then it was off the internet for a while and then it came back on and and so I did a an interview with um, uh, live science Sarah Miller who's who's interviewed me a bunch of times um, about it and uh, she's like is there any way to make the chicken sashimi safe and cook the and chicken? I said cook the chicken yeah. 
But here's the here's the fun part of that of this cooking this chicken sashimi, and maybe maybe you can help me um, with this. So with am I am I equally as wor- am I more worried about chicken in the inside of what looks like muscle meat of chicken uh, than I am of of beef because of the deboning process? Like is is it does it look like like I have a hard time answering the question of muscles supposed to be sterile and how would the salmonella and chicken get inside that or salmonella and, and campylobacter get inside that whole chicken breast? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're on, on the surface, pun intended, you're, ah. you're right, right. Um, that if you have whole intact muscle and you par fry the outside and the inside is raw, um, there should not be a risk. So yeah, I mean, from from a from a from yeah. a risk management standpoint, that seems uh, to be, you know, if if you if you're bound and determined to eat this food, okay, yeah, you par fry the outside and the inside's going to be theoretically sterile. But I I don't know. It just it just seems gross to me. So maybe it's, it's me. It's the yuck factor. Well, and that's what your 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 post says. It's chicken sashimi is risky semicolon and gross um so yeah i mean it's it's certainly i would say it's riskier than fully cooked chicken um uh, it's probably less risky than totally raw chicken so there you go right right yeah and it's yeah and it it, it, but uh, but i i think like i think there is the potential for more what is looks like in, internalized to us, but really is just on the surface. But the surface had a bone in it. You know, you know what I mean. Like, like there's not so. It's not like a a big cow where there's a lot of muscle, whole intact muscle on a parts of chicken, like a you know chicken thighs. There there's lots of places for that salmonella and, and Campylobacter to to infiltrate that that isn't really internalized, but but means that we need to get the full internal temperature up to 165. Right, and I and I would say if people are really interested in this, then you know somebody should fund a research project where we go out and we collect a lot of chicken sashimi and we fi- and we find out what the incidence of salmonella and campylobacter would be. And my prediction is it would not be zero. Yeah, I agree. Agree. So chicken sashimi, gross. <laughs> uh, I, you, you got a hard out at three. I have one more thing I really want to talk about. Sure. Oh, uh, nacho cheese guidance memo? Nope. Oh, but we, I we, really want to talk about that too. We, yeah. We, so let's, let's do a lightning round. So we've, we've got to do, we've got to do uh, nacho cheese uh, guidance okay. memo. Okay. Check. And then we got to do uh, Penny on the Ice. Oh yes, Penny on the Ice. So Penny, so we we our good friend, uh, great friend, not even just good, great friend of the podcast, um, uh, Michelle Daniluk is is currently, I think, without power. Currently without at, power, yeah. At our at her house, she's uh, is in. She lives in uh, Lakeland, Florida, which uh, was right in the the path as all of Florida was of Hurricane Irma. And, and she was, she moved to, uh, another, another place, uh, and stayed there with, and the power was back on. Anyway, anyway, um, she, she shared something on Facebook and we, we had a little brief conversation about this over text about, um, this thing where if you, if you know your power is going to go out or you think it is, it's a good idea to have a, a cup of water, and put a, a penny on top that with the theory being if the power is out for any sort of amount of time that 
you would get an indication that it's safe or not safe based on whether the penny remains on top of that ice. I, I, you, you brought up something and I brought up something on this and I don't, here's lightning round. I don't think that that's been validated and I don't know if it works. (laughs) Right. Well, and, and, but, but I've been thinking about how to do this experiment, right? So, um, maybe you get a penny, maybe you get a quarter. Like I'm thinking like a real simple experimental design, like take, a big cup with with ice in it and a small cup with ice in it and then two of the big cups and two of the small cups and then penny on a big cup, penny on a small cup, quarter on a big cup, quarter on a, a small cup and then basically just do like time-lapse photography or like set a timer and well, then like just that. like leave them, leave them at room temperature um, and then like wait and see or maybe put them in the refrigerator and then check them at various times because what we don't know is we, what we don't know is like the thermal mass of a big cup versus a small cup the the actual mass mass of a penny somebody somebody was saying something about well uh, one of the one of the blocks was saying uh, oh a uh, copper conducts heat better really i you, you, I, you really, I don't think the copper is going to do anything different than uh, are the pennies the, even copper anymore well no they're not but whatever i mean I guess we get a zinc penny with copper coating and a copper penny, but I mean, you know, it's like so. But but just like what is what the size of the of the coin? Yep. And but I think that the mass of the ice, right? I really think Absolutely. that a small cup is going to behave differently than a large cup. In the surface area of the uh, of the cup, right? Yep. Like not even right. not even just how much ice, like uh, uh, you know, two inches of ice in a large cup versus right. five inches of ice in a large cup. And right, right. How, you, use, you do a tall cup versus a, a, a tall right. skinny cup versus a short wide cup. Yep. And is the penny going to slide to the side? Do you have this flattened part at the top where the penny might sit while there is melting and then it refreezes? I mean, yeah, there's lots of. Uh, I, I think we could. I think we should do this work. And and as Michelle had said to us, too late. We should have set this up before the hurricane came. <laughs> to which point, I pointed to her. We could just unplug a fridge anywhere. We don't need a hurricane for this. Ah, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, well, and you don't even really need a fridge. You can just do it at at, at ambient. But uh, but and here's the thing: if you want to do this, it is a great failsafe, right? In other words, if you come back and the penny is at the bottom of the cup. You know that right. that food is bad. What you but if don't the know, at the t- if the right. at the top, you don't know you that don't it's know. safe, right? So it allows you to rule out very dangerous situations, but it doesn't allow you to rule in safe situations. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, no, good, good, uh, good point. All right. Part two of the lightning round. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, uh, California department of public health memorandum dateline, September 6, 2017. So, so this was dateline. Thank you. Good job. So, so this was, uh, this was sent, um, to us from, uh, a friend of the pod, Linda Harris, who downloads the pod, but we'll never hear this cause she doesn't listen. Um, or maybe she will someday, but, um, we can't link to it because I don't think that it's out there anywhere, but basically Marler got a hold of this and and basically uh, just reproduced it verbatim. So we'll link to his blog post. So I I also did. Oh oh oh, awesome cool. Well, it's it's that on Barf Blog. Yeah. Okay, send me the link and we'll link to you too. I will. Um, I but will. but basically, um, 
I mean, the, 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 the advice from California Department of Public Health is good, but I think the key, the key, the three key things that we learn from this is, uh, the California state, uh, CDPH states, a few items in particular were noted during the investigation that was concerning. A few items that were concerning, I think. But anyway, I'm going to not edit the grammar of CDPH. I, I, I did. I'm just like, you know. <laughs> oh, damn. Good for and you. I wrote this as the memo highlights three notable things that came out of the investigation. I just rewrote yeah, the just entire rewrote sentence. The sentence. Good job. Good job. Um, the five-pound bag of nacho cheese collected at the retail location on May 5th, 2017 was being used past the Best Buy date. My question is, Ben, what's the Best Buy date? Right, like you, right, you, right, you, right. you told me the day it was being used. Was it but how long? Was it was it May first? Was it uh, I don't know May first, two thousand sixteen, April first? Right, exactly. Right. That that would be useful information, and I'm sure they know I it. Agree. Why didn't they say it? Who knows? Um, okay. Records were not being maintained by the gas station employees, indicating when the bag of nacho cheese was originally added to the warming unit. Okay, that's good. Yes, that's true. Um, The plastic tool designed to open the bags of cheese provided with the nacho cheese warming and dispensing unit was not being used by the employees. Uh, Again, a follow-up question. What were they using? Their teeth? A knife, a jackknife, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, rabid dogs wandering by. I mean, anyway, so, all right. So, so that's, that, that's to me is the most salient part of the memo. But then again, uh, uh, California uh, uh, CDPH goes on to say, uh, so five pieces of advice, uh, management and employees should follow instructions. Um, management should ensure the records are maintained. Management should ensure the warming and dispensing units are not turned off. Um, uh, management and employees should ensure that any supplied tools are used and management employees should verify on a regular basis, internal temperature of hot cheese is being held at the proper temperature. And again, there's, there's more details, but I'm going pretty quickly, um, through all that. So anyway, your thoughts, my, my thoughts are, um, I'm going to steal a thought from, uh, uh, Aaron Yusugi, who's a friend of the podcast who posted on barf blog on, uh, on the barf blog, um, Facebook page about this that wait Barf uh, Block is a Facebook page yeah we got a Facebook page we're we're in the like in the 20th century Don Whew. we paste we post stuff there and then people make comments there's a whole there's a whole thing there's a whole community you don't know about um and uh, as I click on it hopefully I can actually see what what he posted <laughs> here. Um, his comment was, my guess was thinning the sauce with water to stretch the cheese and mess- messing up the formula control. Oh, so I, I wonder, which I thought was that it wasn't highlighted here, but I wonder if the plastic tool designed to open the bags wasn't being used because they were using something else to open the bags and then adding water into it. Like yeah, instead of opening. Uh, yeah. That's a, it's a, that's a good question. I don't, uh, I don't know the answer. I know, uh, again, there was some email, uh, discussion with Kathy Glass, uh, noted, uh, cheese and botulism expert. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I, th- my impression from, from that, and this is only going from memory is that I, I think that there, I mean, I, I appreciate Aaron's suggestion, but I think that the product may just be vulnerable. Uh, I think uh, that right, right. You, it may grow bot, uh, even without dilution, but, but it's a good, it's a good point yeah so um but yeah i mean it i I don't think i've shifted too much from my suggestion uh when this when this happened which was somehow 
Um, and, and maybe the plastic tool design, the open bags, this, that last one is, is where this is, this is. Someone was using some other type of equipment to introduce a, a, a spore deep inside of this bot, you know, this cheese bag. And, um, and that you know they're built to the the bags are built so they can't get entry to it so that's where I'm I'm focusing in on. Say Holding, that again. So that the like whatever the tool was you know these plastic tools come in each box, and that's what gets used to open the bag and and place it in there. So if they're using something else, that it's that implement that tool was could have been the source of the spore because it's Good it's point. a reused you know utensil. They're Good using point. something else. Good point. Um, and uh, the I, at, at first I was like, the best buy date, why does that matter? I was like, that's a quality thing. Why are you even citing this? And then I thought, oh, hang on a second. Maybe they're using the same bag and just adding more cheese to it. Well, or they were they were just the, – the they didn't want to waste it, and so they just left it in there, right? Yeah. Like so – so maybe it was Best Buy May fifth, but they had been in there for see. And again, it's it's about time and temperature, right? And so maybe it just had been in there for a month past the Best Buy date, and it's right. just not designed. I mean, the system you know has some fail safes built into it, and one is that you're going to throw it out by the Best Buy date. So yeah, yeah, totally. So cool. Anything else for our lightning round? I, we got I, four four minutes left. I think I think I think I think we can call that a show. We can definitely call it a show. This is uh, um, it, this will go up, and uh, if if people are in the uh, uh, Minnesota area, in in the area of Minneapolis, not just the, not just the state, uh, you and I are going to see each other on Tuesday, and we're going to sit in some setup on a stage, I believe, and do this uh, in front of a bunch of people, and yeah. uh, we're going to. You know what I think we're going to talk about? I think we're going to talk about uh, bags of cheese and. Um, maybe, maybe see some of the other things that we talked about today, but well, maybe not because we got to fi- we got to figure out what's new from today, Thursday till this coming Tuesday. So right pressure's on and what the people want to talk about. Well, and, and I think one of the things that we can definitely, so I, th- you know, we, in the, in the two, three minutes we have remaining, uh, we should probably not try to plan, um, what we're going to do in Minneapolis, but I think, uh, explaining what a podcast is and, and asking who listens to podcasts and who listens to us might be a good way to start. But, but then okay. from then, you know, like, you know, after that, like just, whew, let's just free, go with the flow. Free form. I'm 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 taking your advice. Remember last uh, podcast, uh, talked about what I was wearing uh, when I was recording at home. Uh-huh. I'm I'm going to be very comfortable for this podcast. That's all I'm going to say. Ooh. It's going to be I'm going to be dressed very comfortably. All right. This you is, know there uh, are, there are lewdness laws in uh, Minneapolis. I'm just saying. I, I I'm I'm willing to push them. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, Don. I think that's. Uh, I think that's a show. Um, right. I'm glad you made it through. Uh, it's time for you to stay up for another uh, 26 hours. And <laughs> do I think we should record four more and just make it a marathon. I think no. And uh, also I think that um, we can't do an after dark on this episode um, uh, because I, yeah. I don't have time. Um, so we can maybe do scheduling in Minneapolis. We will schedule in Minneapolis. All right. We'll talk to you later, Don. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.